Good afternoon. It's Friday the 11th of February 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio as usual for Friday, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and we're going to get straight on with the uh, Canada trucker situation. Yeah, this has really just turned into an explosive uh, story in the last couple of days. Uh, it's really turned into an international incident now between the United States and Canada. A lot of people listening and watching us will know that the uh, Canadian truckers have mounted a protest in the capital city of Ottawa in Canada, uh, but it's not confined to the capital of Ottawa. The real action is now happening in the border sections between the United States and Canada, uh, most uh, notably the Ambassador Bridge uh, crossing. We'll show you a map of that in a second, but let's just look at uh, what's really hit the headlines uh, just in the last 24 hours. The United States is now urging Canada to use federal powers to end the bridge uh, blockade. They're talking about the Ambassador Bridge there that connects uh, Canada right by the city of Detroit and Michigan uh, as well. So this is unprecedented because now it's an international incident. The, the White House press corps uh, is pressing the Biden administration. What are you doing about this situation? Are you gonna help Canada end the blockade? Canada is now asking for federal agencies to be involved, Department of Homeland Security, the FBI are already involved in terms of surveillance, already helping the Ottawa police. So this is an unprecedented sort of a two authoritarian governments effectively teaming up to crush uh, what is effectively illegal and lawful uh, protest. But it's incredible. So, you know, these truckers, are get, they're actually getting results. They have lifted this issue right to the top of the national agenda in Canada and how long uh, before it becomes uh, the same in the United States. Now they're repealing the mandates in a lot of states in the United States and a lot of cities. There's still some that have mask mandates and there's still some remnants of the Biden's federal vaccine mandate. But in Canada, now two provinces uh, have already begun immediately rolling back all these COVID restrictions, Saskatchewan and Alberta. Okay, so those are two dominoes that have already fallen, not completely rolled back everything, but for the most part, they are rolling everything back. Mm -hmm. So that's in stark contrast to what the Justin Trudeau uh, uh, coalition government is pushing for, this kind of unanimity of policy across Canada. Let's just take a look here uh, at what we're talking about in terms of geography. So just for people who don't know, uh, here is the, uh, on the far uh, left-hand side there, the Coots border crossing, that's Montana, just below Calgary there. And if we go further east below, you'll see the Ambassador Bridge crossing. That's the most busy trade route between the United States and Canada. The most amount of commerce goes through that junction right there. And then further up, uh, you have also the crossing at Buffalo as well. But so mainly we're talking about this one here, this is the Ambassador Bridge crossing. And uh, we have some images uh, that have come, here's Justin Trudeau. He's not happy about this, of course, but nobody can quite find him. He's doing Zoom calls at the moment, Mike. Uh, he fled as soon as the truckers entered the Capitol, and he has made a few appearances uh, in, in the government there, but uh, for the most part, he's, he's AWOL, basically. Uh, so he's doing Zoom calls. So there's the Ambassador Bridge uh, there on the left-hand side, uh, and here is the Coots uh, crossing there in Montana. So very effective protest, Mike, very effective protest. They're getting results. They're getting results. They have lifted this issue of vaccine mandates, mandatory vaccines to the top of the agenda. For It's a national priority. It's all anyone's talking about in Canada right now. So, I mean, these guys 
are unbelievable. And, and they're digging in their heels in. We, we also, one thing I'll say is there was uh, intelligence last night that the police were getting ready to move in and, and uh, with mass arrests of truckers and then also get CPS involved with regards to children, taking the children from the families. These are sort of the threats that uh, we're, they're hearing on the grapevine. The police have set up a processing center with biometric uh, fingerprinting and ID processing to, to arrest these uh, truckers and protesters. This is according to the truckers spokesperson in this press conference yesterday. So that could have, that might have already started happening this morning. Obviously we're in the UK right now. So in terms of uh, East Coast Standard Time, they're probably just getting going at seven in the morning or something like that. Uh, so we don't know, but that's what the truckers believe is happening. They have a legal team in place already. They've already prepared their defense. There's a whole army of pro bono lawyers, even in the city of Ottawa, that have volunteered their time to support these truckers. They have money coming in from all over the country, from internationally, massive amount of support. So this is not a fringe minority. This is not a minority movement. They have broad-based support, and this is what the mainstream media are trying to cover up. These are the real heroes in this story. It's amazing. Well, that broad-based support, of course, uh, was first identified whenever they ran their crowdfunder on GoFundMe and uh, $10 million uh, just was refunded straight away yeah, after that, a bit that, of pressure. 90,000 individual donations. Yes. Over 90,000. That's that's broad-based. So as they as a result, they had to move uh, on to uh, Give, Send, Go. And uh, well, the Total at the moment is back up around 10 million or so. So it's $9.6 million at the moment of a $16 million goal. Um, but, well, legal action was brought and uh, the Ontario court froze the assets uh, to donations for truckers. Uh, this is right across the mainstream media uh, for the truckers' protest from Go, Give, Send, Go. Uh, or has it? Because actually, Give, Send, Go is saying, well, no, actually, we're not having that. Uh, they tweeted this out this morning. Know this, Canada has absolutely zero jurisdiction over how we manage our funds here at Give, Send, Go. All funds for every campaign on Give, Send, Go flow directly to the recipients of those campaigns, not least of which is the Freedom Convoy campaign. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there may be an injunction in place, but it really very much depends on how a particular crowdfunder platform operates its platform. Uh, some require you to, to uh, set a, a target. And if you don't meet that target within the time scale, then they refund the money automatically. Others start, you know, give, give the money to the, the, the good cause uh, as you go straight away. Yeah. Uh, and this seems to be, I'm reading into that tweet, that that's how this particular one works. Yeah. That's uh, how and, GoFundMe works as well. You can release the money as soon as it starts coming. Okay, in, but so. in that case, it, that, that didn't happen. But, but in this case, that seems to be the way it's going. So so uh, uh, this, this injunction, which has uh, been placed in, in Ontario, basically they're saying, forget it. Yeah, and, and not only that, the Canadian authorities are basically saying that they're pursuing uh, supporters even in the US and they're asking for help from the FBI. They're trying to paint this as a Trump-backed uh, effort and they're saying there's MAGA hats there and so forth. So they're using this to sort of demonize it and justify a January 6th style hysterical uh, uh, reaction to this, saying that it's, it's you know, an act of sedition, etc. And this is somehow some nefarious uh, uh, Trump-inspired uh, plot, and it's totally not. You know, you've got liberals out there, you've got all working class people, you've got uh, people who support them, all uh, ra races, denominations of religion, 
uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. You've got Native Americans out there mm. with the the so-called, you know, white truckers. Uh, so it, the 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 effort by the media and by pundits to to castigate these as some kind of far right movement has absolutely fallen flat on its face. So it's just not working. Well, you know, ninety nine percent of the headlines are are universally uh, negative on this thing, but. Uh, and the mail, the Daily Mail, it has to be said, is is totally schizophrenic. Oh, well, ninety nine percent of its headlines are negative about most things as well. But one headline that it did catch my eye was this one: uh, the truth about the Freedom Convoy. Uh, Rupa uh, Subramania uh, uh, spoke to close to one hundred protesters. She didn't find a single insurrectionist, white supremacist, racist, or misogynist. Uh, she did find a diverse group of decent people who've had enough, and that really is the key point. Uh, these are not. Uh, extremists. These are not people that are conspiracy theorists, as you've said, a wide, broad spectrum of people. The big success here is when they moved it, Mike, from the issue of you know talking technically about vaccine passports and vaccine mandates. They moved away from that and moved it into the, to the space of the discussion about basic fundamental rights and freedoms. And when once they did that, then you know that that's when the real traction sort of began, mm. and it became kind of okay for more people to come in and support them. Because you know when you get into this technical argument with the government about their technical medical bureaucracies and uh, dictatorships uh, and technocracy stuff, you know it, you you end up losing because you end up in their sort of camp in terms mm. of argument. When you bring it into the area of freedom and liberty, universal uh, principles like that that's when you can open up a really big tent on this conversation. And this is also what the European uh, trucking movements in France as well have done really well. They've shifted that discussion into that basic fundamental rights um, uh, issue and not uh, arguing about tech, you know, technicalities with, mm. with the government. Uh, okay, so uh, let's bring this on screen then. This is uh, Mark Carnage uh, writing in, uh, what is that he's writing in? Uh, the Globe and Mail, sorry, yeah, yes. It's easy to forget, Mike, yes. trust me, it's, it's not the greatest publication. Uh, well, indeed. And uh, the headline is, it's time to end the sedition in Ottawa by forcing the law, enforcing the law and following the money. Well, he would know. That's Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of England, just, uh, just to remind Current people. climate czar for the UK government, plus also cl current climate czar for the United Nations. For the, for the UN, and a very, very close ally of Klaus Schwab. Uh, as well. Indeed. Uh, so let's look at how, how, what he said in this. But now, in its second week, no one should have any doubt this is sedition. Uh, that's a word I never thought I'd use in Canada. It means incitement of resistance to or insurrection against lawful authority. Uh, is it lawful authority? This is, this is the whole debate. Uh, he is clearly extremely spooked about what's going on here. Let's, let's move on. He says, drawing the line means choking off the money. Uh, that financed this occupation. Uh, again, many Canadians who were amongst the initial donors were likely uh, well-meaning. Perhaps they were unaware of the convoy's stated objectives or, like many in positions of authority in Ottawa, they didn't take them seriously. Perhaps they wanted, uh, what they, all they wanted was a new COVID-19 policy with fewer restrictions. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's complete nonsense. Uh, the initial donors were likely well-meaning. Well, when you took down, when you, when you stopped their finance, and you took down their campaign on GoFundMe. Uh, they just re-campaigned. They just re-donated on the next uh, platform. So it's not like they just donated by accident because they've clearly made uh, the same gesture once again. And go back up on screen here. You know what he's saying. What Mark Carney is saying here is is actually patently false. 
The truckers have had very, very clear objectives. Their agenda, their platform was crystal clear and very simple. End all mandates, end all of these COVID restrictions. Right. And so th there's no ambiguity about that, but he's trying to inject ambiguity by what he's saying here, uh, that somehow their stated objectives uh, weren't disclosed at the beginning. That's a total lie, but that shows you the level of deception that people like Mark Carney work on. They're, you know, they can't be straight with the public. And boy, imagine if someone like that wants to get into politics. Uh, well, well, let's just hold on one second because you could be closer to the truth there than you think. So uh, here uh, is the final little quote from this. Uh, but by now, everyone sending money to the convoy should be in no doubt. You are funding sedition. Foreign bankers of an insurrection interfered with their domestic, politi uh, domestic affairs from the start. Canadian authorities should take every step within the law to identify and thoroughly punish them. Uh, the involvement of foreign governments and any officials connected to them should be identified, exposed and addressed. I wonder which foreign government he could be talking about. The only one that is blamed for this type of interference in domestic politics, of course, is the Russian government. That is what he's referring to without any doubt. Uh, and <laughs> scapegoating the Russians. He, yes, we've seen we've seen this in Canadian press. Uh, we covered it on this program a couple of weeks ago. A Canadian uh, pundit or a Canadian uh, presenter on on a Canadian news program, uh, basically asking a question about Russian. Is this is this truckers uh, uh, convoy a, a <laughs> Russian backed exercise? And mm -hmm. even Mark Carney is is talking about this now. I mean, this is just incredible. But you talked about him. Is he standing for office? This is the speculation now. Well, go back to this, uh, go back on screen, this quote. This is jackboot language. Look at this. Bookmark this, everybody. That is who Mark Carney is. Yes. Even if, if he gets into politics, as you're alluding to, Mike, to, you know, take over. From Trudeau, that's put, what he's aiming big, for. Big boy's boots on that Trudeau yeah. couldn't manage to get his feet into. Um, this is the type of person. He's an authoritarian, and he wants to run a hardcore green agenda. And that's exactly what you're reading there. That's how he's going to prosecute his green agenda. He's yes. going to do it with a green jackboot, okay, with spurs on the bottom. Okay, this yeah. is who Mark Carney is. Unbelievable. Uh, but but let's just remind ourselves, uh, you know, this. what is this agenda? Is there an agenda or is that just a conspiracy theory? I think it's important that we remind people, uh, the current prime minister, Justin Trudeau, who doesn't even have a mandate, who's with the, the most flimsy coalition government, they've stitched together with what, 20-something percent? that his party managed to garner. I mean, whatever it is, it's pretty pathetic. Yes. So anyway, he's in power. And this is him just last year, uh, his, his statement to everybody. Well, everyone was locked up at home in, in their houses and the businesses were shuttered and the children weren't getting their education. Here's what Justin Trudeau was putting out to his electorate and to the world. Watch this. Building back better means getting support to the most vulnerable while maintaining our momentum on reaching the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the SDGs. Canada is here to listen and to help. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality and climate change. So there's uh, definitely a World Economic Forum young leader speaking. Another one, another yes. one. So we've got Emmanuel Macron, we've got uh, Justin Trudeau, we've got Jacinda Ardern. And by the way, there's a massive uprising right now in New Zealand. We haven't had time 
to put together a package for it. Hopefully you guys will, yeah, will cover Monday. it on Monday. Yeah. But I mean, it is incredible the amount of pushback uh, against Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand right now. And the, she's, she's basically deployed the police and they're literally beating uh, protesters like crazy mm -hmm. in the Capitol. And it's just really a, a sad scene in New Zealand. And she's still trying to pursue a kind of a zero COVID uh, strategy and it's failing miserably with vaccine uh, apartheid to basically you know discriminate and segregate people based on their vaccination status. The Kiwis aren't having it anymore. Mm. So her, her stock is just plummeting. Justin Trudeau is toast politically. He will never, ever, ever recover from this. He is now the butt of so many memes online yeah. they're just going to keep circulating forever he's finished basically i don't know what job will be available for him once he's done uh, in his current position but i don't even think he could hide in the un after this mm. it's really that bad there, here's the bottom line I, I don't want to belabor this but all these politicians might have to do instead of hiding in their cabins and and on zoom just go down to the protest site meet the organizers sit down and listen to them isn't that what you were elected to do? And this is for every politician. They don't do this anymore. They run, they hide, they sick law enforcement on the protesters and then call all, all the protesters racists and uh, neo-Nazis and extremists and terrorists. Instead of going and engaging with them, listen to them, find if there's some middle ground that you can reach, but this isn't happening. We are dealing with a fascist movement in governments around the world that is international. And I'm telling you, it's it's not good. No, it's not. So uh, what's happening in Europe then? Well, it's important to point out uh, that the, the this trucker movement has spread uh, to the continent as well. And so this is a good Twitter account that we're following right now, European Freedom Convoy 2022. It's at Europe Convoy. It's basically aggregating a lot of information from all the different countries that have trucking convoys uh, around the continent. So the big one that where we thought it was going to be big was here in France. So, but Paris is cracking down. Macron, this is probably why Macron ran to Moscow, uh, probably because of this. So the police are basically passing all sorts of emergency laws to keep people from coming. And so they're really worried because there's a big grassroots movement in France with regards to the trucks. As we know, the French know how to organize right. when it comes to labor and trade guilds and things like that. But let's just take a look at what the uh, French government is going for here. Protesters prohibited from entering Paris. So protesting is now illegal in Paris between February 14, uh, 11th and 14th, citing a risk of public disorder. So they're using the highway code, Mike. Uh, risk of public disorder. So they, they say they're doing it legally, but if you want to call this legal, fine. Maybe in the in a in a fascist society, four thousand five hundred euro fines. Okay, what else? Maximum points on the driving license. Three year suspension if you're caught or suspected to be uh, involved in the uh, trucker or the convoy. You could be in a car or a motorcycle with a flag, uh, basically this is what they're threatening, up to two years in prison. So this is basically to deter, Mike, uh, to deter anybody from showing up. Yeah. And so they're coming from Marseille, they're coming from Lyon, they're coming from all, Bergen, all the different uh, provinces in France to converge on the capital in Paris. But the big one is gonna be in Brussels, okay? So they might shut down the Paris one, they might shut down a few of these around Europe, but there's convoys coming from all around the EU and uh, I believe in the following week, uh, from, from the following week onwards, it's going to be in Brussels. 
Okay, so they want to put pressure directly on Ursula von der Leyen and the uh, unelected uh, technocratic uh, government in Brussels. In Brussels, yes. So that's something to look out for. Hopefully, we'll cover that as well. Okay, well let's uh, let's move on because we were talking about Mark Carney there, and of course that's Great Reset, Climate, uh, Green New Deal, and so on. But uh, there's stuff afoot in Germany uh, with respect to the Green New Deal. What's up? Well, this is pretty amazing. Uh, you know, you can call this unprecedented here. And, uh, you know, this, this is um, uh, Annalena uh, Baerbock. She's the German foreign minister. She's one of the, she's in the Green Party coalition. Another there. Uh, World Economic Forum uh, global young leader, by the way. Really? I'm, yes. I'm so surprised that uh -huh. you pointed that out, Mike. I wouldn't have ever suspected <laughs> that she was under Klaus's. So she's just appointed a new cabinet position, the climate secretary of state. It's a new cabinet position, and it's an American that's being appointed to a German cabinet position, Jennifer Morgan. She's the head of Greenpeace. That's the head of Greenpeace, American, being appointed to a, a new, new cabinet position. So this is interesting. This is a new position, uh, and basically it's, it's to bring climate change into policy, into foreign policy. Yeah. So they want, they want climate change to be more central in terms of Germany's foreign policy. So they've created a whole new cabinet position and they've gone outside of the country to fill that. I mean, where have you ever heard of this before? This is pretty unique. This is unique. So if, if anybody was suspecting that Germany is still an occupied country, I mean, they already have 35,000 U.S. troops in there. Mm. Uh, U.S. intelligence is so well penetrated in Germany. They have been since, you know, the end of the, the Second World War. Okay, so Germany is an occupied nation. They're currently being kicked around and pushed around over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline right now. But so Jennifer Morgan, the head of Greenpeace, is now in charge of foreign policy as it relates to climate change. Who is Jennifer Morgan? She's American. Uh, she is apparently she's due to become a German resident. But I don't know. It's, it, that's totally abnormal. But here, here she is. And she did look familiar. Yes, that's right. She was Greta Thunberg's handler. Everywhere Greta Thunberg went, Jennifer Morgan went. And uh, at fashion shows, oh, there they are again. Must have been a green, organic, sustainable fashion show. And here they are once again there. And, you know, that's Jenny and Greta and their little European and world tour. So she, she has her PR team that she basically attached to Greta. So all the speeches, how dare you, and all that sort of drama is probably uh, Jennifer Morgan is probably the brainchild of all of that. Uh, and so does this have any implications for maybe some gas pipelines that we know or something like that? Well, it has implications if you, if you think it's risky that uh, Greta Thunberg now has a direct line into Europe's most powerful uh, country in terms of foreign policy. What does that mean in terms of, well, this is no coincidence, this appointment, is it? What does it mean? This is what it means. It's all about this, the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. This is gas from Russia into Germany. Let's take a look at what the Nord Stream 2 means for Germany. Well, it's quite simple. This is a joint venture started under Angela Merkel, the, uh, the, the former chancellor of Germany. Uh, Russia can deliver an additional 55 billion cubic meters of natural gas per year. What does that mean for the Germans? That means straight off the bat, 26 million uh, homes can be uh, given heat and power uh, as a result of that. What else, Mike, here? This is the big one. It would stabilize spot prices on the gas market. So you saw what happened over the last couple of months with the explosion of energy prices. 
part of that is because Europe needs more energy. So we're paying through the nose so that they can stick it to the Russians, which is the basically the long and the short yeah. of this situation. But who's, who's really driving this? Well, that's actually what's driving it, okay? This is a great reset agenda. So there's a foreign policy element to it. Keep Russia out of the European affairs. Don't let Russia hold the, uh, the, the, the energy sort of Damocles over Berlin. But, but is it really about Greta? Is it about the Great Reset agenda? Is it about making fossil fuels so expensive that people will sort of be bang for some sort of a green solution or heat pumps or what? I mean, well, this, this, we're going to talk a little bit more about this later in the program, but this is, I think, bang on the money. That's so, so is, is geopolitics uh, using the Great Reset or is Great Reset driving geopolitics? geopolitics? This is the big fundamental question that we're putting out right now. And so Greta Thunberg, uh, it's not a joke anymore. Yeah. It will, would they go to war with Russia over climate change policy in the future? Is that a possibility? When you have people like Greta in charge of European ministries in uh, 15 years or something like that, is, is, it, is, this, is this crazy? Are we talking I don't think it's madness here? I don't think it's I terribly mean, crazy. Will we go to war over climate policy in the future? Good question. Well, let's move on to uh, uh, COVID issues now. And uh, well, Patrick has been mentioning that uh, COVID policies have been rolling back in certain US states uh, here in Europe. Uh, here's Elena Hallengren, who's uh, the Swedish Minister of Health. Uh, well, she's saying the pandemic is over. It's not a pandemic anymore. Uh, as we know this pandemic, I would say it's over. Or is she? Because then she went on to say uh, it's not over. Uh, but as we know it, in terms of quick changes and restrictions, it is. Uh, so what has Sweden announced? They uh, are releasing their their various uh, restrictions, but the key thing is they're stopping their mass testing program, Patrick. And uh, this, since this has been the key driver for everything that we've seen in the last two years, that's a pretty big step forward. Uh, and we need to see that happening in this country as well. Uh, let's move on then to uh, Sajid Javid. And uh, of course, last week he stood up in the House of Commons and said that it's only right that uh, vaccination as a condition of deployment uh, is reviewed. Uh, and so he uh, announced effectively the end of the mandate for the NHS, or did he? Because of course, it was, there was a heavy caveat on that. That was subject to a consultation. Uh, and uh, well, that consultation uh, is ongoing. And if you would like to take part in it, uh, it's here. Uh, Department of Health and Social Care revoking vaccination as a condition of deployment across all health and social care uh, consultation. As you can see, it's at consultations.dhsc.gov.uk with a big long uh, alphanumeric string afterwards so that it's really easy to find. Uh, if you want to freeze the screen, you can copy that down or I'm sure you can find it if you use your search engine of choice. Uh, but that is an ongoing situation. Uh, it, the health care staff are not out of the woods yet because everything that uh, Sajid Javid mentioned was subject to the result of this consultation. That's right. That's right. So yeah, it's it's, it's great that they make the URLs uh, really easy to remember, Mike. Yes. It's all about inclusivity and getting people as many voices heard as possible involved in yes. the democratic process. So. Um, well, a bit of sad news now, and that is the passing of uh, Luc Montagnier. Yeah, that's right. Luc Montagnier. Uh, passed away uh, yesterday or, or the, day, the day before. The day before, yeah. yeah. So that's uh, confirmed uh, at the age of 89. So, you know, he was, uh, was quite quite an incredible career, quite an incredible uh, life, uh, probably one of the most famous uh, scientists, uh, you, would, you would say, in modern, modern times here. 
And so, you know, he wasn't a stranger to controversy either. He got his Nobel Prize uh, in the 1980s for as the co-discoverer of, uh, of the HIV virus. But ever since he got his Nobel Peace Prize, he has uh, drifted very much away, gradually away from the establishment and has questioned uh, the establishment's narrative on AIDS drugs, on AIDS, H HIV, uh, virus, virology, and every, everything else, and especially on COVID. Yes. Uh, most recently here. So here's a, a nice photo from the Wall Street Journal, 1987. That is a younger Luc Montagnier uh, there. But look, just last month, look at this, January 9th, he penned this op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, Omicron makes Biden's vaccine mandates obsolete. There is no evidence so far that vaccines are reducing infections, from the fast-spreading variant. So, look, Montagnier was very, very vocal, had a very strong voice. You know, he he, he was a big platform, mm. but the mainstream media generally stayed away from him and didn't even engage in, no matter, he said some pretty controversial things mm. in the last couple of, uh, of years about COVID and vaccines and variants and things like that, but they, they wouldn't engage with him. So he was left to use alternative media platforms uh, in order to engage in that conversation. So, and here's a, a quote from that uh, op-ed, uh, which he co-wrote with uh, Jed uh, Rubenfeld, uh, who I believe is with uh, Yale, Yale University, I think it was Yale Law. But uh, it would be irrational, legally indefensible, and contrary to the public interest for government to mandate vaccines absent any evidence that the vaccines are effective in stopping the spread of the pathogen they target. Yet, that's exactly what's happening here. So I don't think, I don't think we can really argue with that statement. Right. Uh, wherever you are on the science, that's pretty much a statement of fact. So, you know, it's unfortunate that, that Luke uh, has exited the stage, as it were, at this particular time, but he did get his, um, some of his best shots in, yes. really, on this issue. But we, we have a video, and, and this is recently, I believe this is 2021, and, and it's subtitled, okay, this is in French, but read the subtitles. What he's saying here is absolutely powerful. And it, I think he's spot on the money in terms of vaccines and the experimental, the experimental nature of rolling out mRNA vaccines without any long, medium or long-term testing, any proper safety protocols, basically experimenting on the population, on children. What are the effects on fertility? on epigenetics down the line, you know, in, in terms of children, you know, and so forth. How do you, how can we quantify these things? That's what he's asking. Let's watch this video from Luc Montagnier. Je suis scandalisé par le fait qu'on veut aussi vacciner des enfants. Parce que là, on touche vraiment à, à, la, à la génération future. Il faut, il faut savoir que, par exemple, pour le glyphosate, n'est-ce pas, des travaux récents montrent que il y a des effets épigénétiques, c'est-à-dire les gens qui mangent du glyphosate dans leur alimentation, ils transmettent quelque chose qui va se produire dans les générations futures. Les fils, les petits-fils, les arrière-petits-fils vont souffrir. Bon, ceci a été montré chez les rats pour l'instant, mais on peut extrapoler à l'homme. Donc, il y a des effets épigénétiques, il faut penser à ça, c'est-à-dire il ne faut pas seulement penser à ses propres générations, mais au futur. Et donc, là, le messager, l'ARN messager que vous injectez de, de votre vaccin peut très bien avoir des effets aussi pour les générations futures qu'on ne détecte pas si on ne les cherche pas.
Donc là, c'est la persistance, on va dire, de ces, de ces substances qu'on injecte sans vraiment connaître les conséquences à moyen terme et à long terme Absolument. Là, on nage dans l'inconnu total et, et, et pour essayer de proclamer la vaccination obligatoire pour tous, c'est une folie. C'est une folie vaccinatoire contre laquelle je, je m'élève absolument. Et je ne dis pas, bien sûr, que, et ce que j'ai jamais jamais dit, et je ne prédis pas que tout le monde va mourir du vaccin, mais des, un certain nombre de personnes vont souffrir du vaccin. Et ça, c'est pas admissible. Donc, ils vont souffrir au travers d'effets secondaires euh, qu'on n'a pas encore observés, qu'on n'a pas encore mesurés dans, dans, oui, dans les des... études parce qu'on n'a pas assez de recul. Exactement. Il y a des effets à, 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 à plusieurs générations, peut-être aussi, mais il y a des effets sur la même génération au bout de 5 ans, au bout de 10 ans. C'est tout à fait possible, notamment pour les, ce qu'on appelle les maladies neurodégénératives. Alors, il y a des séquences de, qui ressemblent à des séquences de prions dans l'ARN du coronavirus, et ces prions peuvent ordonner, enfin, désordonner plutôt des protéines naturelles du cerveau pour les modifier et en faire des, des, des prions. Et je So, all totally valid questions. Yes. It, I don't think you can argue with anything that you said. All legitimate concerns, legitimate questions. So, you know, hats off to Luc Montagnier. You know, even at 89, mm. he's still kicking the doors down. So, you know, really impressive. Um, you know, tremendous, tremendous uh, person. So. Okay, but uh, in the meantime, uh, we're being told there's a new variant uh, around, but it's not for COVID-19. No, if you've noticed, and uh, if you're if you're watching, you probably would have noticed that this uh, HIV is now being thrown around in the mainstream media, like uh, incredible. And apparently, Mike, uh, well, we're told anyway, there's a new variant of HIV. Imagine that. Mm. Let's take a look at uh, this story here. Uh, and oops, sorry, we're going to go back, um, back to here. So get ready for it. The return of AIDS and a new vaccine is a picture of Anthony Fauci there. 30 years of HIV, a personal journey. So again, an another retrospective memorial and uh, for, for the great Anthony Fauci. What's going on here? Let's take a look at it. So an alleged variant in HIV, it's called the VB variant, okay? So some, and this is a quote from uh, from 21st Century Wire here, uh, that some of the uh, mainstream media are calling this new, this variant new is problematic, however. The study makes very clear that this uh, variant of HIV has been circulating, according to these scientists, since at least 1992, uh, that the most recent case was diagnosed in 2014, and that in total only 109 individuals with this uh, strain could be found. The variant is not new. Uh, the only new part is the research identifying this variant as distinct from other strains of HIV, but fear cells. So they're saying it's more virulent. This new HIV va uh, variant is more virulent. Uh, how, where have we heard this before? Can't I mean, imagine. <laughs> so here we go again, right? So what's behind all this? You're probably saying, what is behind? What's driving this? Why are you seeing this? in the headlines now. Let's take a look. What could it be? Well, here's a little clue. You see Moderna mRNA. Ah, luckily, this scary new variant of HIV has been identified just in time to make Moderna's HIV vaccine trials seem more relevant. This particular vaccine candidate known as uh, IAVIG002 was developed in conjunction with Scripps Research and the International AIDS 
vaccine initiative, uh, IAVI, and the trial is being partially funded by, take a wild guess, Billy Goats. You absolutely scored there. Yes, it's Billy Goats. And uh, sorry, we run through that text again. Yep, there he is. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is funding uh, the new trials for Moderna's HIV vaccine because all we need these days is another vaccine, right? HIV's on the way out. AIDS has almost disappeared, according to the experts over the years. And all of a sudden, we need a vaccine for it, right? Yep. And and maybe if it's if it's proven to be an epidemic or an emergency, maybe you can get emergency use authorization. Authorization, and who knows? Try it out on the Africans first. That's always worked for these companies in the past. But speaking of Bill Gates, uh, it's good to know that his new book is coming out. He's announced here. Uh, how to Prevent the Next Pandemic. This is Billy Goats' next bestseller. Is anybody going to actually buy it? I'm probably going to want to read it just to know what the government's going to be uh, pushing for and what the pharmaceutical industry is going to be trying uh, in the next couple of years. So he's basically giving his plan away. What's that old saying? They need to make their intentions known no. publicly yeah. uh, before they do what they're going to do. So anyway, he's put out a little propaganda video uh, I think we hopefully we, we've got that video. This is Billy Goats uh, basically explaining how we've 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 almost made it through the pandemic, but not quite, but not quite. But with the help of his new book, we'll be able to prevent all future pandemics. Let's listen to Billy. We're not as close to the end of this pandemic as we would like, but we have learned a lot about how to stop this from happening again. That's why I'm excited to announce my new book, How to Prevent the Next Pandemic. In the book, I explain what we've learned from COVID. Why didn't we have vaccines more quickly? Why is it hard to make billions of vaccines? Why did therapeutics take so long? I'll propose the specific plan laid out in a pretty clear way. The plan is three elements. First is to constantly improve health systems, including in developing countries. The second is to build a global pathogen surveillance capacity that no matter which country it shows up in, we can apply resources and understand what's going on very quickly. And finally, the innovation across the three different categories, diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines that will get us far better tools far, far quicker than we did this time. That will make it possible to make disastrous pandemics a thing of the past. I think it's exciting uh, that we have this opportunity to use our best ideas to stop pandemics for good. I have to say, Patrick, uh, health, you know, he's calling for improved health uh, systems in developing countries. Everybody would like to see that, but you see how they're going about this. Developing countries, people are effectively farm animals in the sense that uh, what he means by improving health systems is we will import the, the pharmaceutical drugs, the vaccines, the other treatments into those countries, but we never allow those countries to actually develop their economies to the point where those economies might become competitive with the big pharmaceutical companies. That's right. So we've got to keep those people at a level of poverty where their lives are basically unpleasant. 
but we're going to make sure that we can make lots of profit by sending them lots of pharmaceuticals. This is a great business model for these. It is. And according to Mark Carney and the technocrats at COP26 and Klaus and Greta, we can't allow the, uh, the Africans to develop because that's going to threaten uh, climate change. Never meet our net zero targets if, so, uh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, sorry, Africans, you're not going to be able to uh, live in a modern developed society because, you know, you got to save the planet uh, because Greta told you that it's going to all get warm and Al Gore said that we'd be underwater by now mm. if, if we listen to Al Gore. You know, what's interesting about that Billy Goats um, propaganda video is look at the images he kept flashing up, children wearing masks, okay? Talk about a lack of self-awareness. I mean, putting that out with the backlash against muzzling the children in America right now. I mean, bad move by, by Gates. The other one is there's, they're spraying statues. I mean, what was that? I mean, so this guy is on another planet. And then the boats, the, the, the Red Cross boat coming into New York Harbor, supposedly to triage for COVID-19 cases at the beginning of the pandemic. That was shown to be an absolute joke as, as a political stunt has already been exposed. And then all the Nightingale Hospital imagery, mm. the, the, all the beds lined up. None of them got used, Bill, okay? It was a, it was a PR stunt. It was propaganda. You were basically doing uh, Xi Jinping uh, style there. Big, brash, bold public health measures, right? No, it's propaganda. So, I mean, this guy is completely uh, a manipulator, okay? Mm -hmm. And he's trying to game this whole chain from the uh, research and development end to getting the, the, the needles in the arms mm -hmm. and then basically changing how society and the economy is structured as well to benefit people like him and the billionaire class that he runs around in private jets with, okay? That's the long and the short of it. So, I mean, how anybody can listen to this guy uh, after what he has been involved in and done over the last two years is pretty extraordinary, mm. so. Okay, so where does that take us? Well, it takes us uh, to this issue. Now, you've probably seen people talking about VADES. Have you heard this term? No. So vaccine-acquired immune deficiency. Ah. So, um, no, that, that's kind of a slang term. So what is VADES? Uh, and this also comes up in this piece here at 21st Century Wire. Doctors are calling this phenomenon uh, in the repeatedly vaccinated immune erosion or acquired immune deficiency accounting for elevated incidence of myocarditis and other post-vaccine illnesses that neither affect them uh, more rapid, that either affect them more rapidly, uh, resulting in death or slowly resulting in chronic illness. This is what Luke Montagnier was just talking about in that video. So what are we talking about here? Is this pipe dreams? Is this conspiracy theories here? What are we talking about? Well, let's go to the Lancet. Uh, arguably, this is a preprint study here, effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccinations against risk of symptomatic infection, hospitalization, uh, and death up to nine months, a Swedish total population cohort study. So they're talking about the risk of, uh, you know, if, if you continue to vaccinate over and over, and let you, after you get your third, fourth booster, there is a potential that this could damage your immune system. In other words, you could get an autoimmune reaction. People are already getting reactions from one vaccine, okay, let alone two, three, and four or five, or as Bill Gates once every month, uh, or who knows, for every variant that they that they can magic up, there'll be a vaccine for it. There's got to be some ram uh, uh, ramifications for that from a health point of view. Mm -hmm. And where does this get interesting? Well, remember a year ago, do you remember the Australian vaccine project in Qu at Queensland University that they had to halt because the trial participants were what? 
testing positive for HIV. You remember that? We covered that on this program. Let's take a look at that again. This is from the BBC, uh, December 2020. Australian vaccine abandoned uh, over false HIV positives. You know, you notice how they've spun this here, false positives of HIV. So they're, they're saying you could test positive for HIV, but it's a false positive because it was within the context of the COVID vaccine trial that they're developing there in Australia. They abandoned this project, okay? Right. But this is interesting. What's going on here? Is, are, is, are, what are they picking up? Are they picking up an autoimmune reaction? from the uh, experimental vaccines that they're pumping into people here? Is that what's happening? Is this something that could be maybe generalized across maybe an uh, entire population? The way we're looking at this, uh, the, the vaccines, the vaccine rollouts, trials and so forth, it is very, very narrow and it's very, very controlled. The conversation's controlled, the, the, our, our vantage point is controlled, we're being gaslit in so many different ways, so deeply that most people can't possibly imagine uh, how warped this whole conversation is. And really, when you step back, like some of the more uh, credible and, and inquisitive scientists like Luc Montagnier have done recently, you'll be able to see, actually, there's more going on here than we can possibly realize. Yeah. And it'll make you question the whole concept of, does HIV as a virus actually cause AIDS? And this has also been questioned by many people, not least of all Kerry Mullis, but it, it forms a large portion of Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s new book, The Real Anthony Fauci. I do recommend people to get that book and especially look at the HIV and AIDS section with regards to AZT, which was a massive money spinner mm. uh, for the companies that were producing it at the time. And arguably, it's responsible for the early death of many AIDS patients, according to those the research, many researchers and um, some of the work that you read about in Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s book as well. Yeah, okay, thank you for that. Okay, let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org slash community. Uh, there are options to help us out there. And if you are watching the program for free, uh, we do need your financial support. So that would be very much appreciated. Uh, share our material that you see on any of the platforms if that works for you, but equally, uh, if you'd like to grab something from the UK column shop, that would be appreciated as well. Now, let's move on to uh, the other big story uh, over the last couple of days, which is all kinds of visits uh, of all kinds of people to all kinds of places, but Liz Truss in Moscow. And uh, well, we have a little bit of video here of Lizzie going to Moscow. Uh, well, there she is in her bearskin bear hat there, Patrick. She's got the nice big furry Russian hat. That's very, so she's kind of got the local look, nice coat as well. And she's got the boots as well. So she's got the whole look. Got right? the whole look. She's got yes. the Russian look. So she's uh, new to the job, isn't she? She's, uh, she hasn't been in, how long has she been foreign secretary? Uh, a few months. A few months. So she's just getting, or, just getting her feet wet, really. Well, well, no, well, come on to how wet her feet are getting because it's, it, we're not convinced about that. She could just be an embarrassment. But anyway, let's, let's look at uh, what it was that uh, brought us to this point. So if we go back a few days. Uh, the UK and Poland have strong history of defence partner as defence partners and NATO allies, says the Ministry of Defence. And so Ben Wallace was off uh, to Poland to meet the uh, his equivalent over there. Uh, that took place a couple of days ago, and uh, then uh, we had Ben Wallace uh, also meeting uh, the Estonian, uh, sorry, Lithuanian Prime Minister. Uh, but uh, Boris was also meeting the uh, Lithuanian Prime Minister as well. So all kinds of uh, shenanigans going on there too. 
Uh, and then where was Ben off to then? He went off to meet the Swedish, Swedish foreign minister. And of course, uh, this is continuing conversations, uh, perhaps maybe about uh, Sweden joining NATO, but that remains to be seen uh, because they still deny that. Uh, and then, then we had this uh, coming from the, the UK embassy, uh, uh, sorry, the Russian embassy in the UK. Uh, foreign Minister Lavrov said, we will welcome UK Foreign Secretary Liz Truss in Moscow within two weeks. Date has been agreed. So that was uh, on January the 28th. That was pu pushed out. And Liz Truss, in the preparations for her meeting, which took place yesterday, as we say, said, I'm going to be visiting Moscow to urge Russia to pursue a diplomatic solution and make clear that another Russian invasion of a sovereign state would bring massive consequences for all involved. Russia should be in no doubt about the strength of our response. We've said many times that any further invasion would incur severe costs, including through a coordinated package of sanctions. Russia has a choice here. We strongly encourage them to engage, de-escalate, and choose the path of diplomacy. Further invasions, he said. Assuming what, they've invaded already? I, I, that's a bit confusing. Uh, yeah, well, because they invaded Crimea, didn't they? Well, you can't invade Crimea because they were already there. <laughs> they were already there to begin but, with. But so. these, these, these are just <laughs> mere details. You don't have to worry about that. So, so anyway, there she is, uh, the lovely Liz, walking into the press conference following her meeting with uh, Sergei Lavrov, um, and uh, so a heavyweight and a, a heavyweight diplomat and a what? A lightweight, a featherweight. Well, we'll just explain how featherweight in a second. But before we get to that, let's just let's just have a look at Liz Truss's closing remarks from the uh, from the press conference and what happened uh, after she finished speaking. The point I was making is that if there were to be an incursion into Ukraine, then that would not be a rapid uh, rapid resolution. What we would see is a prolonged conflict, which I think would be very damaging for obviously the people of Ukraine, but also the people of Russia and for European security. So at all costs, we must make sure that we avoid that, whilst obviously maintaining the fact that Ukraine is a sovereign country that makes its own decisions about whether it joins NATO or not, and that also maintains its territorial integrity. Спасибо. Okay. So I think the, 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 the message that was being sent there by Sergei Lavrov was absolutely clear. No handshake at the end of the press conference. He walks away and leaves her standing there on her own. And the statement just got worse uh, because following the press conference, this is what Sergei Lavrov had to say. Uh, I'm honestly disappointed that our conversation turned out like the mute with the deaf. Uh, we, appear to be, we appear to be listening, but we're not hearing anything. Our detailed explanations fell on unprepared ground. Uh, he said, uh, uh, it's like when they say that Russia is waiting for the ground to freeze so that tanks can easily enter Ukraine. It seems that our British colleagues were in similar ground today, off which bounced all the facts we presented to them. So uh, he, he's not pulling any punches here. Uh, he's clearly saying that uh, Liz Truss 
uh, was not listening. Um, that Russia was presenting information which was not getting nothing back. And that she was ill-prepared. I wonder how he would have come to that conclusion. Well, I think we get a clue uh, from TASS here, but a number of uh, mainstream outlets have reported this. So, for, uh, and the headline here is, Foreign Ministry Knows Better uh, How Truss's Geography Blunder May Affect Talks. Uh, and well, basically, this is because off camera, uh, she apparently uh, couldn't, wasn't sure when Sergei Lavrov was talking about certain regions, whether they were in Ukraine or not. She thought they were in Ukraine. Specifically, uh, Rostov and uh, Voronezh, yes. which are part of Russia. And he said, do you recognize the territorial sovereignty? She said, I will never recognize the territorial sovereignty of uh, Russia of these, yeah. and Voronezh, and then he said, well, "By the way, they're already, they're still in, they're already in Russia." Yes. And oops, you know, then you could see. You so know. we've got a map to show uh, where these areas are. Yeah, yeah. So we thought we'd be, uh, you know, a little bit supportive of uh, the uh, foreign secretary uh, and make sure she knows some help with the geography yes. there. And just just to be clear, we put a big pinhead there on Kiev, so there's no confusion there. As you can see, there's Ukraine, there's Russia, and the two uh, areas that we're talking about. Yes, that's right. That's Ukraine and Kiev, and that's Voronezh there, and that's Rostov there. So, you know, I don't know how she got those confused with Ukrainian regions, but it's good to know that the foreign secretary is studying really hard before these important meetings that could be sort of world-changing uh, meetings and events and so forth. Well, it gets better because although that happened off camera and there was no video evidence for it, then uh, Liz Truss was interviewed by Russian uh, media later on in the day. Uh, and this is what she had to say. It seemed to me, she said that Mr. Minister Lavrov was talking about a part of Ukraine. Uh, and she went on to say, I've clearly indicated that these regions are part of sovereign Russia. So she's attempting to walk back from that. But unfortunately, this isn't the only geographical mistake that she's made. Um, so uh, here's the National here reporting uh, a couple of weeks ago. I think this was the 2nd of February. UK, Ukraine crisis was the headline. Liz Trust mocked for geography gaffe by Russia. Uh, and this was because um, Liz Trust was a bit confused about the Baltic states being in the Baltic rather than the Black Sea. Um, so she thought perhaps the Baltic states were related to the Black Sea. Uh, uh, not, he, not, he, not the Baltic Sea. Well, they both start with B, so I can see how she got confused. Okay, and uh, well, here is the uh, Russian ambassador to the UK. Uh, and if you remember, he was talking about her speech that she gave uh, in Australia a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and he said that the words by Foreign Secretary Elizabeth Truss about Ukraine having suffered from various invaders from the Mongols to the Tartars is one example of her massive uh, brain power, basically, because, of course, that was only one invasion, the Mongols and the Tartars. Uh, in fact, that was the same invasion. Uh, she didn't quite understand that in her speech. She uh, was implying multiple invasions of Ukraine at the time. And I think we've got to leave it to Maria Zakharova, the foreign ministry spokesperson, Russian foreign ministry spokesperson, to really sum up uh, the Russian attitude to Britain's politicians. And I have to say, Patrick, I'm struggling not to agree with her 100%. This is what she said, Miss Truss, Ms. Truss, your knowledge of history is nothing compared to your knowledge of geography. If anyone needs saving from anything, it's the world from the stupidity and ignorance of British politicians. And I, I, I'm really struggling to have a problem with that statement. Pretty, pretty, pretty straight up there. She doesn't mince words. No. Maria Zakharova. So, I mean, I mean, who's going to really argue with that when you look at this situation, Mike? But, you know, 
um, you know, we're all about, you know, we're, we, we just want Liz to know we're, we're on her side. We're on her side. We're here to help. You know, so we did a whip around the office uh, this morning. We chipped in and we picked up something uh, for Liz. We got this is the uh, Prisoner's Geography, Our World Explained in 12 Simple Maps. And we've also put post-it notes on the relevant sections of, uh, of Russia here just so she can find those sections. Uh, quickly, but we think this... We'll be sending this to her in the next day or yeah, so. Yeah, so it's a beautiful, full color, full color, and very nice illustrations. Russian Cossacks, and, you know, look, ethnic, yes, yes. all the ethnic costumes and everything. So this is a great... A great we, resource for it, 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 Yeah, this is going to help, okay? So that's uh, from us us to, to you. Liz, yes, yeah. you can look forward to that. Now, uh, in the meantime, as Patrick's already mentioned, uh, Emmanuel Macron was visiting uh, Mr. Putin. Emmanuel Macron uh, scurried off to uh, to Moscow. Moscow, to, yes. To get away from the truckers, apparently. Uh, and in the press conference, uh, Putin had this to say, and some people are fairly well misrepresenting this, but anyway, he's he's talking about, he's, he's giving an answer to a Western media person here. So he's saying, I've been saying it. I want you to finally hear me. Do you understand it or not that if Ukraine joins NATO and attempts to bring Crimea Backed by military means, the European countries will be automatically pulled into co war conflict with Russia. Now, he's not making a threat here, he's making a statement. Of course, NATO and Russia potentials are incomparable, he said. Uh, and uh, he said that they understand it, but we also understand that Russia is one of the leading nuclear states, and by some modern components, it's even outperforms many others. Uh, there will be no winners in this, he said, and you will be pulled into this conflict against your will. And he said, you won't even have time to blink your eye when you execute Article 5. This is the uh, one for all, all for one collective defense. Uh, Mr. Macron, he said, doesn't want this. He said that he, Putin, doesn't want this, which is why President Macron is here torturing me for six straight hours. So this is typical Russian humor there. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you've got to understand the Russian humor. But, you know, some people are misrepresenting this as a, as a threat to the West by Putin, which it absolutely is not. No, he is he's stating fact. a fact, and he's he's stating very clearly the risks that are being posed by the United Kingdom and the United States and this policy that they're pursuing at the moment, and NATO as well. Um, so also yesterday then, Boris was in Brussels. Uh, here he is uh, with Jens Stoltenberg. I've titled this The Masked Marauders because, I mean, what are they like? Look at the state of those two. Okay. What's with the masks? Is the pandemic still raging? Yes. Well, very good question. Um, but the, the narrative from Boris was the most disastrous moment. So um, we have a video clip, first of all, uh, of the, the, the press conference here. This is not the montage one. This is the, the other one. But let's just have a look at this. The number of Russian forces is going up. The warning time for a possible attack is going down. This is probably the most dangerous moment. I would say, in the, in the course of the next few days, in what is the uh, biggest security crisis that uh, Europe has faced for, for decades. And today I've agreed with the Secretary General a package of support sending troops, planes and ships to defend NATO from north to south. Well, if you were watching carefully uh, uh, what was going on Plymouth Sound behind us there earlier on in the programme, you may have seen one of those ships heading out of Plymouth Sound, clearly because uh, we're deploying those, uh, giving those over to NATO. All, all four of them or six? No, it's just six. 
There's just one. Uh, just the one. Just the one in but this case. 250 troops to Poland. Yes. Uh, there's already 100 there, but they said 350 to kind of pad out the number, but there's actually 100 already stationed there. So 250 troops to Poland and 1,000 apparently spread out amongst the NATO allies, Romania, and other countries. So that should put a big dent in the Russian military, I think. That'll show Putin that... Uh, Britain means business. Right, but we have a second little piece of video here. Now, this was pushed out by Number 10 Downing Street on their Twitter feed and other places. Uh, I, and I'm sorry to do this to everybody. We do have to, to watch a little bit of this because this is absolute propaganda. Just listen carefully to what's going on here. So, Prime Minister, thank you again for the United Kingdom's strong commitment to our transatlantic alliance and for your strong personal commitment to NATO. So once again, welcome. Jens, uh, thank you very much for, for welcoming us today to, to NATO. I just want to, to stress that it would be an absolute disaster if uh, there were to be serious bloodshed on Ukrainian soil. And I know that uh, people in Russia uh, must be thinking about this too. And I know that in the Kremlin uh, and across Russia, uh, they must be wondering whether it is really sensible to expend the blood of uh, Russian soldiers in a, in a war uh, that I think is, uh, would be catastrophic and also uh, a pointless, tragic and, and vastly economically costly to, to Russia. And um, all I would say is that this is the moment now to think of uh, another way forward. And uh, President Putin talks about the indivisibility of security across the, the European continent, uh, by which he means that uh, Russia can't be threatened by anything that NATO does. Well, look, I want to stress, NATO is not a threatening, uh, intimidating or aggressive alliance. That is not what NATO does. NATO has kept the peace in our continent for so long and achieved so much by being a defensive alliance. That's what NATO does. And uh, you can't promote the, uh, the indivisibility of peace in the European uh, landmass by, by putting 130,000 troops on the borders of, of Ukraine. Now, what happens when you put music like that behind uh, rhetoric like that? It gives this. It gives a, a mundane, mediocre speech more gravitas uh, automatically. You put a soundtrack below it. What is that? There's a word for this, right? Oh, begins with P. Does it? Does yeah, P, uh... it's a propaganda, right? That's what that's what the Chinese do when they air all their speeches on TV, and we always have a go at China for being uh, purveyors of propaganda. I don't even think Russia would be that crass as to go that far, but even if they did, hey, we're all playing the same game now, aren't we, with the propaganda? Yes, now, of course, uh, during that uh, uh, that little speech that he gave, uh, it could be said that there were a couple of untruths in that. The first one is that NATO is a defensive alliance. NATO may have been a defensive alliance at one point, but Britain, as one of the most senior members of NATO, of course, as we've reported many on the times of this program in the last couple of years, has decided that it's going to change from being a defensive, being in a defensive posture, to being in an offensive posture. It's called uh, the it's called interoperability. It's called the integrated defense uh, program, and so on. So, 
So the, there has been a, a shift in policy with respect to whether we are defensive or offensive or not. And NATO has shifted eastward. I mean, they, they, they've practically encircled Russia now uh, on the northern, uh, sorry, the, yeah, the northwestern part of Russia, the Baltic states. Yes. Uh, Liz, the Baltic states. And then right around to the uh, southern flank of Russia as well. So, I mean, is that not offensive? I mean, it certainly looks like it from where they were uh, uh, before 1989. So we began this segment with uh, Ben Wallace uh, heading over to Poland, uh, but now Boris has headed over to Poland as well. Uh, so here he is. Uh, the Prime Minister met po uh, Prime Minister, the Polish Prime Minister today and discussed our response to the situation in Ukraine. He also met some of the uh, British troops that are deployed in Poland as well. Um, so. What is going on here? There is just massive uh, diplomacy going on on the Western side between uh, Boris and the, the US State Department, the uh, various NATO ally countries uh, on one hand, and this this continuing bombardment of Russia with uh, really rubbish rhetoric, uh, which is designed to inflame the whole situation. We've been talking about it for a little while now. It's not getting any better, uh, but... Uh, Perhaps we should look at the, the a little bit of video from Vladimir Putin. From 15 years ago. Yes. So February 10th, 2007, and this whole issue of NATO, Russia was actually the first to raise it 15 years ago at the Munich Security Conference. Uh, these words are prescient, uh, if anything. Let's listen to this. I think it is obvious that NATO expansion does not have any relation with the modernization of the alliance itself or with ensuring security in Europe. On the contrary, it represents a serious provocation that reduces the level of mutual trust. And we have the right to ask, against whom is this expansion intended? And what happened to the assurances our Western partners made after the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact? Where are those declarations today? No one even remembers them. But I will allow myself to remind this audience what was said. I would like to quote the speech of NATO General Secretary Mr. Werner in Brussels on 17th May 1990. He said at the time that, the fact that we are ready not to place a NATO army outside of German territory gives the Soviet Union a firm security guarantee. Where are these guarantees? Just a, just a footnote, the date on that video is uh, uh, meant to be 2007, not yes. 2020. Obviously, you can tell from the way... Different looking Vladimir Putin. The way yeah, Putin yes. looks, that was a much younger Vladimir Putin. But what he said is, is the important thing. Uh, which is that, you know, it's completely unacceptable uh, that NATO has completely overran its original remit and gone against all of the major Western leaders that have preceded the current crop mm. of uh, democratically elected leaders uh, who their predecessors had promised uh, that NATO would not be an offensive alliance and would not encircle Russia and threaten its borders. Right. But that hasn't happened. So. Now, uh, perhaps a good a piece of good news, maybe, uh, because Jens Stoltenberg, of course, uh, is in charge of NATO at the moment, but not for very much longer. He will be leaving the job soon. Uh, and, uh, well, here's the announcement. It's, uh, he's going to become the uh, governor of the Central Bank of Norway. Uh, and uh, that begins in September this year. So a natural career jump, right? You're yes. head of a military alliance. And what, wh where do you go from there? Well, of course, you jump into central banking, right? head of the Norwegian Central Bank. He's going to be basically marshalling the country's transition to a central bank digital currency, which I'm sure that they're planning. I'm sure someone like him 
would be perfect for the job, right? Yes, indeed. Turn Norway into a totally cashless society uh, and bring in the central bank digital currency and the great reset. So Yen is the man. Yen is the man. Okay, let's move on. And uh, well, a number of occasions now we have made the point on this program that uh, if you've got a smart meter in your home, uh, you need to be considering what the implications are for your uh, energy bills going forward. Because of course, what uh, energy companies want to do is uh, to start charging by the hour for the energy that you use. And uh, so we'll explain how this works in a second. But this has finally hit the mainstream news at last. Uh, and this headline from The Telegraph, because they, they, they were the first to report this, smart meter overhaul to open gates for surge pricing. Uh, and uh, so let's have a look at what Ofgem, uh, which is the regulator for energy in this country, had to say about this. A, this major system upgrade is a significant milestone on Britain's path to net zero. So what is this uh, major system upgrade that they're talking about? Well, what they are going to do is at the moment, uh, uh, smart meters are not reporting uh, any more often than, than if you were to phone up your energy company once a month and give your, your latest meter reading. So they report back to the, uh, the, the energy company once a month, but the energy companies are going to be allowed to change that to make sure that the smart meter is reporting back on your energy usage uh, once every 30 minutes during throughout the day. So the energy company then will get an opportunity to see what your energy usage is at any particular hour of the day, and they can charge you appropriately. So this is a major system upgrade. It's a significant milestone on Britain's path to net zero, they say. Uh, they went on to say, it will enable a more efficient, flexible, and greener energy system, which will save an estimated 1.6 billion to 4.6 billion on consumers' energy bills. So you don't need to worry about it, Patrick. This is gonna save you lots of money. They don't know exactly how much money it's gonna save you. It could be, it's just such a wide range. It could be anything, but it's gonna save you lots of money. But then they go on to say, Ofgem will work closely with the industry to make sure it delivers this major upgrade while ensuring those in vulnerable circumstances remain protected. But why would they need to ensure that people in vulnerable circumstances are protected? If it's going to save people an estimated 1.6 billion to 4.6 billion on energy bills. Someone's telling there's, porkies. There's a porky being told here. There's a contradiction in this statement and it's nonsense. So let's understand exactly what we're looking at here. So uh, here is a typical day. Now, energy is bought by the retail companies uh, in order to sell to you and I uh, on an hourly basis. So it's bought a day in advance. Uh, and this is the intraday market for uh, tomorrow. Uh, and you can see the kind of price shifts that there are in any particular day. But equally, if you then show the average price uh, increases and decreases over a particular year, the past year, uh, you can see that the fluctuations are quite a volatile market. It's increasingly volatile because of issues with Russia, and it's not going to get any less volatile in the very near future. Uh, and so we see huge price swings uh, during the course of the year, but also big price swings during the course of the day. And what the energy companies want to do, this, this situation is a big risk for energy companies because of the price cap. Uh, then they have to eat up many of these uh, spikes in, in prices and try to make an estimate of, of how they charge their customers over a period of time and hope that at the end of the year they make a profit. They may not. Um, so they carry risk and they want to push this risk away from them onto us, the consumers. And this is all about net zero policy and the Great Reset and the World Economic Forum, again, because this is all about net zero and discouraging the use of energy at all. So uh, obviously at 5 p.m. in the afternoon at peak time, you will be paying, if you're 
if you've got one of these smart meters and it's reporting back on 30 minute basis, you will be paying uh, your cost for that 30 minute or that one hour period at five to 6 p.m. based on whatever the energy company is paying the following day. That's the direction we're heading in. It's an extremely uh, dangerous situation for, uh, for individuals, particularly those on less than average incomes, for example. So what's the bottom line? You don't have any uh, security in terms of knowing what you're going to pay from month to month. You're, you're at the mercy of the, uh, the middleman, which are the sort of the traders and, right. and the, the, the liberalized market for energy, right? That, that's exactly right. That's the bottom line. Yes. That's what the smart meter is all about. That's what it's, it's all about. It's about getting you to pay more for less, okay? And what does that translate into? More profit for everybody upstream, okay? So that's what smart meters have always been about. This is what they are about. It's not about saving the planet, not about lowering the temperature of the planet. I mean, to think that smart meters are gonna lower the Earth's atmosphere temperature somehow. I mean, total science fiction, but they're selling it to you like there's some kind of logic behind it. It's amazing what green marketing can do, Mike. Yes. Uh, now let's head over to Germany and Telegram. And uh, well, this is in German, so let's uh, translate the article. The headline is uh, Telegram blocks channels in uh, Germany for the first time because of local violations of the law. Now, uh, they're saying that the people involved in running these channels were doing work, were pushing out harmful content uh, involving uh, the Holocaust and other stuff on Telegram channels. Uh, but basically what's happened is that tele Telegram has added a new system to block uh, various channels on its platform, which based on phone numbers. Uh, and uh, so anybody uh, with a, a particular German phone number who's registered on Telegram uh, were not able to access these channels after a certain point in time. Uh, and this happened because the German Minister of the Interior, the equivalent of the Home Secretary, uh, had a meeting with Telegram uh, about five days ago. Okay, so that was what was happening there. Uh, I think that's important for many people that are uh, involved in the anti-lockdown protests and so on because Telegram has become the platform of choice uh, for them. And just to be aware that uh, Telegram's not safe from this type of censorship. That's right, that's right. So it, you can see the danger the danger here. And so, you know, it, what what is the sort of... Um, basis for this at the end of the day. A lot of it is just really very emotive and reactionary uh, thinking uh, in terms of you know, the media could be involved in this or activist groups or groups like, you know, we've, we've talked about these various anti-hate groups, the Center for Countering Digital Hate or Hate Not Hope. They have all these groups set up and then they call the media and the media goes, makes, makes uh, some headlines and stories out of it. They then pressure the politicians to act and do something, and sometimes they do do this directly with Facebook and Twitter. They have a direct line in, but some of these more free speech oriented platforms, uh, they maybe they don't have that same type of audience. Well, well, and they haven't had that same type of connection with the with the authorities up mm -hmm. until now. But that seems to be changing. Right. So, so yeah, it, it, and you know what? The other thing about this is the last thing I'll say. It is so easy, okay, for the uh, intelligence services. Uh, for the FBI in the U.S., for instance, uh, to put up a fake uh, a political group and make create a Cassius Belli uh, of sorts mm. to 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 basically cause an uproar uh, to say that it's an extremist group or whatever, and use it as as some sort of cheap uh, example they can use to shut down a whole swath mm. of channels or accounts. And I think this has already been done 
many times uh, over already. So this is another uh, risk here with allowing government to have this unfettered uh, level of censorship uh, on these platforms. Online safety bill is on its way, but probably within the next month or so it'll be laid before Parliament. We'll have more on that uh, in uh, upcoming. Now, uh, this is perhaps a controversial topic, but uh, here's another attack on Russia in the mail. Uh, Kremlin backs disgraced teen skater who tells her to platform uh, and win after it's confirmed she failed a drugs test uh, weeks before the Beijing Olympics uh, and her gold medal there. Uh, but Russia insists she could still compete. Uh, now, this is a an ongoing, a long-term attack on the Russian sporting authorities with respect to performance-enhancing drugs. But there's a bit of hypocrisy in this, Patrick, uh, because this is all about perform performance-enhancing drugs and people taking part in sport having taken performance-enhancing drugs. But there's another form of performance enhancement which is creeping into sport at the moment, of course, uh, and that is the trans performance enhancement issue uh, and more and more people. So Sharon Davies has been campaigning on this issue for quite some time. Dilly Thompson now getting involved in it as well. Good. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, and this, this was from a few days ago, this argument in British Cycling. British Cycling saying uh, that basically they're not having it. We take a zero tolerance approach to instances of hate being targeted at individuals because of their views of gender identity. But this is ridiculous. This is not about hate or gender identity. This is about men saying that they're women and taking part in women's sport. This is a form of performance enhancement. Of and course. I don't see the difference between this and cycling has had a problem with performance enha enhancing drugs for, for decades. Mm -hmm. I don't see a difference between uh, somebody who's born a male taking part in female sport and somebody who's taking performance enhancing drugs. Is that, is that a is that an extreme position to take? Listen, why, why take steroids and risk all the side effects of steroids uh, when you could just be a man and just jump in to women's competitive sports and like wipe the deck with uh, w records, world records? I mean, look at uh, Leah Thomas, the uh, collegiate swimmer in the United States mm. for Pennsylvania University. I mean, setting women's records, <laughs> competed with the men's team two years ago, mm. was 435th in the nation. Now she, he is, or she, he, is number one, okay? It's, it's ridiculous. This is about fair competition at right. the end of the day. It's not about political identity. It's not about gender identity or hate or anything like that. It's about fair competition. And these are men muscling women out of their own sports, of their own private spaces, of their own safe spaces, pushing women to the back of society again. It's men doing it, okay? There's nothing else going on there. So, I mean, when is this debate going to mature into some sort of common sense uh, zone? I mean, because right now these people are completely in la-la land. Yes. And the, the Olympic Committee is one of the worst offenders. I mean, they're literally going to relax their sort of hormone treatments or whatever requirements. So you can just say, like, I feel like I'm a woman today and uh, I want to sort of be in weightlifting or whatever. I mean, it's not only that, there's safety issues. I mean, talking about the, the the male MMM fighter who decided to 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 fight as a female. I mean, mm. broke someone's jaw. Uh, you know, head injuries of women getting basically beat up by men in the ring. Men who are who believe that they're women. I mean, or just aren't good enough to take part in men's sports and see an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, so it's it's kind of ridiculous if you think of how that this is allowed to happen right now is absolutely ridiculous, and it shows just the total lunacy that is per pervasive in society right now. 
that this sort of thing is it, that we're even having to debate about this. Look, women, biological women are women, and they're the only women. That's that's it. They should have their own sporting competitions uh, for themselves. Why don't trans athletes, if they're ma- if they're male and they want to identify a female, why can't they still compete with the men? There's no laws keeping them out of men's sports. What, you know, why don't the why don't the men step up and absorb this problem rather than dumping it on the women? I mean, it's shameful, really. Yes. Okay. Um, we're going to just end on a piece of well, what many would consider to be really good news, and that is that Christina Dick, of course, uh, has uh, well. Here's what she said: "I will not resign." And then she said, "I resign." And this seems to be a common problem. Now, uh, it seems that she resigned because of pressure from Sadiq Khan. Uh, and uh, then the question is, why did he do it in the way that he did it? Because he didn't announce her, he didn't tell the government, he didn't tell the Queen, he didn't tell anybody that he was going to do it. He basically didn't even tell her. Uh, she said she's not going anywhere. And then the next thing she was saying, she's away because uh, he called her into a room and said, it's time to go. Um, and uh, well, many people view this as being a little, too little too late, of course, because uh, you know what did she do over the years? Well, it was Jean, Jean Charles de Menezes. Uh, who else was there? There was... Uh, uh, well, all kind of, well, there was the handling of Extinction Rebellion and Black Lives Matter on one hand versus the handling of uh, uh, lockdown protests on the other hand. But probably the thing that, uh, that killed it for her was, uh, possibly the thing that killed it for her was the fact that, uh, you know, Partygate, uh, when it began, the Met said, well, we're not going to investigate this. And then suddenly there was a U-turn. Um, clearly, that has had a big part play in it as well. Well, I would have sided with their initial position on that. You know, it's, it was a fake. It's a fake story. It was and a fake scandal. I think it yes. was a political ruse. Who knows why? It might have been just to create a fake scandal that, that would slide off Boris's Teflon coating uh, so that they couldn't actually nail him for something more serious down the road. That's a common sort of Westminster tactic, isn't it? So, um, I mean, it could have been that, you know. So does that mean she's not going to get her OBE? Uh, don't know about that. Yes, but certainly she should have been kicked out uh, in two thousand and five after the Jean Claude uh, de Menezes thing. She was in charge of that operation. Uh, nobody uh, actually had any uh, charges to answer over that. How about Salville? Was she uh, was she in charge during that whole farrago? And Jimmy uh, Salville. Not sure. Not period? sure what yeah. what her role in that particular exercise was. But anyway. Uh, she's gone, and uh, well, we'll see. Is it going to be Neil Basu? Is he going to be the next one? We will, we will see in due course. Okay, well, we've got to leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time, 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Hope you all have a great weekend, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.